Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Hey, thanks for being here. When I looked at my phone and saw it was going to be 65 and sunny, I was like, maybe I should skip church. And uh, (laughs) I feel like that means I'm becoming more and more of a Madisonian. Um, but I'm glad that I didn't. I'm glad you didn't too. If you uh, if you're a guest, thanks for being here. We uh, we appreciate you taking the time. Uh, at the end of the gathering, I'll be at one of the doors. I'd love to meet you. So if you'd stop by and introduce yourself, that would be cool. We uh, are in the book of Acts. Looking at the book of Acts is our fall series. We'll be in Acts chapter. 10 today. So if you have a Bible, why don't you get over there? If you don't, that's cool too. Uh, If everything works, it'll be up on the screen behind me. If it doesn't, then you can just imagine it and trust me, okay? That would be (laughs) a dangerous proposition, but we'll go with it. Um, I'm going to have you stand up just because you look like you uh, wanted to sit down and stand right back up. So I want to accommodate that. And I'm going to read our text for us here today. And then I'm going to pray. And then we will get to it. Acts chapter 10, verse 1. Our text is actually chapter 9, verse 32, all the way through the middle of Acts chapter 11. But I'm just going to read these verses because I think it will give us a good starting point and we'll go from there. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius. He was a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout, his last name was probably Tucci. Uh, a devout man, <laughs> a devout man who feared God with all his household, giving alms generously to the people and praying continually to God. And about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly a vision, in a vision, an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Meanwhile, on the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry, and he wanted something to eat. And while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance, and he saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending. And it let down by its four corners upon the earth, and in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. If you're a hunter, that's your proof text right there, okay? But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. If you're a vegetarian, that's your proof text, all right? And the voice came to him a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for who you are and who you make us. We thank you for your grace, for your mercy being new every morning, that you're long-suffering and gentle and kind to us. God, we thank you for your word. We pray as we open it up together as a family and as a body that you'll speak to us by your Holy Spirit that you'll encourage us, that you'll challenge us, that you'll stretch and grow us as only you can, and that you'll do it for your glory and for our joy. We thank you and pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 All right, go ahead and have a seat. So I want to give you just a little bit of overview. If you haven't been with us, this will get you caught up pretty quickly. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Jesus has ascended back to the Father, 
And he's left some specific instructions to the disciples. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, he says, Number one, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. What I'm about to send you to do, you're going to need power, and the Holy Spirit's the one who is going to give it to you. And you will be my witnesses. I just want you to stand in the witness stand, as it were, and explain to people what you've seen and what you've heard. And I want you to do it, and he gives them couple locations. Number one, in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And what this provides for us is really a geographical strategy and flow of the entire book of Acts. If you read through the book of Acts, you see that in Acts chapter 2, the New Testament church gets started on the day of Pentecost in what location? Where are they? They're in Jerusalem, right where Jesus had told them to start. And if you read Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5, and Acts chapter chapter 6, where are they? They're in Jerusalem the entire time. Acts chapter 7 comes along, and a deacon by the name of Stephen, who is a Jew, stands up in front of the Jewish religious leaders, and he gives them a Jewish history, and introduces them to the Messiah, whose name is Jesus. And what do they do to him? They murder him. Yeah, they murder him. In the very next chapter... The church is scattered and we're introduced to a guy by the name of Philip. And where does Philip go? Philip goes to Samaria. Remember the strategy. In Jerusalem and Judea, which was really one location, and then into Samaria. And so in Acts chapter 8, we see the church scattered and spreading. They go exactly where God tells them to go. At the end of Acts chapter 8, Philip is introduced to a eunuch who is from where? from Ethiopia. Are Ethiopians generally Jewish or Gentiles? They're Gentiles. And so what you see is the church spreading out beyond Jerusalem into Samaria and into the uttermost parts of the earth, starting with Ethiopia. And the Ethiopian eunuch is the first person who becomes a Christian outside of a Jewish context in the book of Acts, and he's the first of three. Last week, Tony of the Italian cohort, and his dad, who heads the Italian cohort, taught us, <laughs> taught us about the conversion of a guy by the name of Saul. Saul was a Jew who God converted on the road to Damascus. You should name a church Damascus, right? That's a good idea. Uh, and he sends him to who? What group of people? To the Gentiles. That's right, to the east side of Madison. Yeah. Uh, He sends them to the Gentiles. And so you have a Gentile eunuch who gets saved. You have a Jewish man who is saved and sent to the Gentiles. And then in Acts chapter 10, we're introduced to a cat by the name of Cornelius, who's an Italian man, who is a Gentile. And what we're going to see is the third and final conversion as God kind of starts to move the gospel all over the world and use the church to do it. Now what's interesting about this is that at the end of chapter 9, we see two healings that occur. One, a guy by the name of Aeneas, and the other, Dorcas. And they kind of, I mean, I'm, I'm super happy for them, and I'm, I'm thankful that they get healed. But we don't really know anything about them, and we don't really know why Luke decides to just arbitrarily let us know that they got healed in this time and place. It's kind of like Saul gets converted, and then a couple of people got healed, and then here's Cornelius. Well, now why, why does that happen? Anytime that you see a miraculous, spirit-led move, especially in the book of Acts, what you're about to see is a new revelation. And it's God's way of saying, what's about to happen is something that you can trust as being from me. 
You can trust as it, you can trust it as being valid. You can trust it as being true. And so it's essentially a green light to the reader and a green light to God's people that what's coming next is of God. He's up to something new and he wants you to pay attention. And so you come to Acts chapter 10 and we get introduced to this dude by the name of Cornelius. Cornelius is a centurion. He is in charge of about 100 men in the Roman army. And his 100 men have a specific name that's given to him. What is it? The Italian cohort, the Tucci's, right? Yeah, the Italian cohort. And so this is a, this is a man who is a, his, his uh, career is as a soldier, and he's apparently a pretty good one. What we also know about him is that he uh, is a very devout man. Listen to the introduction that we get from Dr. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, regarding him. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. He was a centurion who was uh, known as the Italian cohort. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to people, and he prayed continually to God. Now, if you're reading through that, you think to yourself, man, this, this sounds like a good guy. I mean, he, he fears God. He is devout in his religion. He teaches his household. He gives generously, and he prays continually. I mean, you might start to think to yourself, this guy must be a Christian. This guy must be a Christian. And in fact, we see that his respect and his regard for God is reciprocated. In other words, God looks at him and regards him and respects him. I want you to look at Acts chapter 10 and verse 5. He saw a vision in which an angel of God came and said to him, Cornelius, or corn for short, right? He, st- <laughs> he stared at him in terror and he said, What is it, Lord? And he said, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And so this is a guy who is trying to live a very religiously devout life. He's very disciplined. He's very committed. He has a very strong moral testimony. And we see that the angel says to him, God sees what you're doing. God, uh, in some regard, respects what you're doing. Uh, But here's the thing that you need to understand about Cornelius. As religious as he is, and as pious as he is, and as devout as he is, he's not a Christian. He's not a Christian. Let me tell you why I say that. If you go to Acts chapter 11 and verse 18, you can just listen to it. At the end of this story, when they, that being the people in the church, heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. In other words, the people that we've been talking about don't have eternal life. They're just profoundly religious, profoundly moral, profoundly good and upright guys and gals. And this is the reason that I want to, I want to make this point to you. Uh, we're living in a context today and in a culture today that's very pluralistic, and I'll explain this, and relativistic. In other words, pluralism is basically uh, what Gandhi believed, that uh, everybody's on the same mountain and all the paths lead to God. No, nothing is exclusive, nothing is, is higher, nothing is, is better. It's just basically all the same with different names and with different stories. And we're relativistic in that uh, not only do we believe that they all go to the same place, but we believe that they're all of equal value. And so Nolan says, yo, this is my God. And I say, whatever works for you is cool for you. It doesn't work for me, but that's cool. It doesn't mean you're wrong. It just means it doesn't work for me. And the thing that you don't want to be in a pluralistic society 
is an exclusivist. And what's exclusivist mean? That there is one way, that there is one truth, and that there is one way to life. And what's interesting about this is that when you look into this and you read through this introduction to this dude by the name of Cornelius, you can kind of get the sense that uh, you're just going along with culture and that he must be a Christian because look how religious he is, right? He must be a Christian because look how good and how moral he is. And what that does is it helps us understand a misunderstanding that we have about Christianity. Because at the end of, 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 of 11 and verse 18, it says that then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. I want to explain to you what Christianity is all about, guys. Christianity has nothing to do with whether or not you're good and moral. Nothing whatsoever to do. Christianity is about God showing himself to us, giving his grace to us, and us repenting before him. That's what a Christian is. That's what a Christian is, and that's what leads to eternal life in the Bible. And it's important for us to identify this because repentance has two tenets to it. The first is, I repent of the bad things that I've done. And most of us understand that, right? If I'm going to come to church, I'm going to say, sorry that I smoked this, drank this, did that with her, right? (laughs) And that's bad. So I repent. But there's another part to repentance. Repentance is also repenting of the good things that I've done. Repenting of the things that I've done that make me feel like I deserve something. You know, in America, we have this perspective on earning that's not biblical. We expect that if I do the right things, say the right things, eat the right things, with the right people, I deserve good. And we're bummed out and we're a little ticked off when it doesn't happen. That mentality is antithetical to the gospel. If anybody deserved eternal life, it was this guy. I mean, this guy is a perfect example of a better Christian than most Christians. Right? I mean, you read this guy and you're like, this guy feared God, this guy taught his family, this guy was generous with his money, this guy prayed continually, and God agreed. But this guy wasn't a Christian. Why? Because none of that makes you a Christian. You don't earn your way to faith. You don't earn your way by saying, sorry, I did those bad things, but look at all these good things that I did. We come to God completely empty-handed, and we say, I have done all of these bad things, and all of the good things that I've done, here's what the scripture says, are as filthy rags before you. Not impressed. God says, a Christian is somebody who becomes a Christian by saying, God is gracious to me, God is merciful to me, and I repent before him, bringing nothing to him. And in response, he gives everything to me. That's what a Christian is. And that's why a Christian is somebody who doesn't really have a leg to stand on when it comes to being judgmental. Because Christians aren't people who, are, who have done the right things. They're just people who have a gracious God. And so there's no hierarchy of morality in a Christian church. There shouldn't be. Because we got all, all got into this thing just by repenting and just by the grace of God. And so I want to make clear to you that this is a great example of a guy <coughs> whose morality and whose religion doesn't get him to God. And if you're in here today and you think 
God wants me to make right decisions at the right time with the right people and then he'll accept me. The only way that God accepts us is if we say, I need a savior and his name is Jesus and I repent and receive the grace of God. That's it. And my man Cornelius does that. And at the end of Acts chapter 11, Cornelius is a follower of Jesus based on the grace of God and his repentance. And what we see is that when he repents in 1043, he's forgiven of his sins. And when he repents, he's forgiven of his sins and he receives the Holy Spirit. And that's what a Christian is. A Christian is not somebody who earned it. A Christian is somebody who's been forgiven. Nothing more than that. And nothing less than that. And so... We are introduced to this guy, Cornelius, but he's not the only dude in the story. In the backstory, we are introduced or reintroduced to a guy by the name of Peter. And in Acts chapter 10, verse 9, just listen along with me. And on the next day, as they were on a journey and approaching the city, so that's the soldier and the servants that Cornelius sent, Peter goes up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And when he gets up there, he thinks to himself, I'm really hungry. How many of you have ever had that happen to you? I think I'm going to go spend some time praying after I get a little snack. (laughs) That's what happens to Peter. Peter goes up to pray and spend time with God. His stomach starts growling. He becomes hungry and he wants something to eat. And while they were preparing it, which also makes me laugh, because he yells down like, hey, make me some food, right? And while they're preparing it, he falls into a trance. How many of you men have had that happen to you, right? I'm hungry. Can you make me something? I'm just going to take a nap while she does that. (laughs) Peter, I might be reading a little bit into that, but it's funny, all right? (laughs) And he becomes hungry. He wants something to eat. And while they were preparing it, he falls into a trance. He sees the heavens open and something like a great sheet descends, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now you need to understand that Peter is a Jew. And that Jews have dietary restrictions. Jews don't like to eat what? Give me some examples. Pork? Bacon? That's the same thing. Uh, (laughs) I just don't want you to get confused at the grocery store. All right? (laughs) Yeah, unless you go to Walmart. Then it's different, but that's a different story, all right? What? Yeah, they, uh, they're not allowed to eat crustaceans or reptiles. There's just certain things. And so Peter, uh, as he's hungry, has this vision, and these things come down, and on it are all these animals that he's not supposed to eat. And this voice says, rise, Pete, and kill, and eat. And what does Peter do? Peter argues. But Peter said, by no means, Lord. Now notice that he argues and he knows who he's arguing with. Right? By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time. (laughs) What God has made clean, do not call uncommon. And listen to this. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up to heaven at once. We're introduced to Peter and Peter's hungry. And Peter's taking a nap. And God gives him a vision of some food that he's not supposed to eat. And God essentially says, I want you to start eating this. And Peter argues with God. And what we see is that God sends multiple miraculous signs to Peter to get him to visit Cornelius. 
He sends him a vision in which Peter argues, and, and Luke says three times. All right? Second, God directly commands Peter to go with the men and visit Cornelius when he sends them to a door. So I, I want you to think about this. Peter's having this vision. He's arguing with God, and as he's arguing with God, how could that be? He walks down, and some dudes say, hey, we're here to take you to see Cornelius, a Gentile. So Peter stops arguing with God for a second, starts to argue with those guys for a second, and then thinks, whatever, I'll just go and I'll look. He goes to visit Cornelius, and Cornelius says, God appeared to me and told me to come and find you. And so Peter, I think probably somewhat begrudgingly, goes, okay, maybe God is up to this thing. He gives Cornelius the gospel. Cornelius repents of his sin receives the Holy Spirit, standing right in front of Peter, and then it's like the light bulb finally comes on for Peter. Oh! (laughs) You wanted me to go. And then Acts chapter 11, Peter goes back to the church, explain what happens, and that's the verse that I read you. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is an important text for you and I, because this is our beginning of the story in the New Testament. Most of you sitting in this room do not come from a Jewish background, and you probably don't come from a Jewish theological background. Up until this point, the Gentiles, which is almost everyone in this room, have been kind of a deep subtitle in the story. Here they become a main character. And what happens here is that God explains to the people at Jerusalem and to Peter his intention to make the gospel available to how many people? Everyone. To everyone. And he tries to get them caught up on his plan. And the first conversation that he has about everyone getting access to the gospel, Peter argues with him. Peter argues with him. Now, the good news is, and I I don't want to give away the end, but by the time you get to Acts chapter 15, Saul is now Paul. There's a council at Jerusalem, and God's people agree, oh yeah, we do believe that God's doing this, but we'll get to that in a little bit. This idea of arguing with God is an important idea in Scripture, and it's not something that happens just a couple times. It actually happens often in God's Word. Some of you guys have heard of a guy by the name of Moses. Moses... Uh, gets raised in an Egyptian home. He murders somebody and is exiled. And while he's, while he's in exile, shepherding some sheep, God comes to him in a burning bush and says, I want you to go back to Egypt and I want you to tell Pharaoh that I want him to let my people go. And what does Moses say? You got the wrong guy, bro. What's he do? He argues. And what we read is that God gets ticked off at him. This is like a legit argument, right? And he says, fine, just take Aaron with, but, but I'm going to be, uh, I'm, I'm the one who created your mouth, and I'm the one who will use your mouth, but take Aaron with, it'll, it'll make you feel better. You have this argument that occurs. A guy by the name of Elijah, one of my favorite stories in the Bible, mostly because Elijah was a bald man, and when people made fun of him, he sent bears to kill him. Um, <laughs> great story in the Bible. <laughs> There's this other story in which the prophets of Baal come and begin to mock Yahweh. And Elijah 
being a man after my own heart, says, oh, you want to talk some trash? Let's take it out back, all right? And they walk up the mountain, and Elijah says, here's the deal. We'll make an altar, and we'll call down fire, and if Baal sends down fire, we'll worship him. But if my God sends down fire, everyone has to worship my God. And what happens? The prophets of Baal cry out to Baal and they're, they're, they're crying and they're cutting themselves and they're doing all their religious duty and nothing happens. And my man Elijah is sitting there eating an apple like, maybe he's taking a nap. You see why I like this guy, right? Maybe he's, maybe he's on another call, right? Maybe his internet line is down, I don't know. And then Elijah goes over to the altar and says, God, do your thing. <laughs> Do you know in the next chapter, God comes to Elijah and says, here's some things that I want you to do. And Elijah says, look, man, I'm done. Just kill me. What? What's Elijah doing? He's arguing. We got some, we got some more things that I want to do so that people know who I am. And Elijah says, no, man, I don't want to do that. Just kill me. A couple years ago, we did a series in the book of Jonah. God comes to Jonah and says, I want you to go and I want you to tell the city of Nineveh to repent. And Jonah says, what? I ain't doing that. And in fact, Nineveh is this way and Jonah gets on a boat going that way, literally, to Tarshish. And the story of Jonah is literally of a man who argues his way into being used by God. He's complaining the entire time. He's arguing with God the entire time. If you've read the book of Job... Job is a man who experiences incredible suffering. And after Job has some friends who come and really, really discourage him, we see toward the end of the book of Job that God looks up into heaven and basically says, what's your problem, man? Why are you doing this to me? And God says, oh, you want to have a conversation? Literally, this is what he says. (laughs) Oh, you got questions? Gird up your loins like a man. Oh, you want to talk? Okay, let's talk. And he says, where were you when I created? Where were you? And just for three chapters, just hammers away at Job. Doing what? Arguing. The book of Psalms are full of men and women, particularly David, arguing with God. Why are you doing this to me? Where are you? What's going on? I don't understand. I don't like this. And let's also be straight. This isn't the first time that my man Pete argued with God. Right? This isn't the first time that Peter argues with God. God comes to the disciples and he says, y'all are going to desert me. And what does Peter say? Not me. (laughs) I don't know about these other losers, but not me. I love you too much. And Jesus says, actually, you're going to be the worst one. Nope. Mm -mm. And what happens? Three times, Peter denies Jesus, which is why it's interesting in Acts chapter 10 and verse 16 that Dr. Luke says, this happened three times. Just in case you forgot the last time. For some of us, what stands between where we are and where God wants us to be so that he can bless and use us is simply losing an argument with God. It's the only thing between here and there is us coming to the end of our argument with God. Maybe for some of you, you have experienced uh, relational loss or betrayal or hurt 
and you know that God says, I saved you by my grace. I forgave you by my grace. I adopted you by my grace. I want you to forgive them. And what do we say? You don't know what they did. You don't understand how much what they did damaged me. And we argue with God. Maybe you're the one who did the betraying. Maybe you're the one who said what you shouldn't have said. Maybe you're the one who did what you shouldn't have done. And God's saying not ask for forgiveness. He's saying ask to be forgiven. And you're saying no. I'm not doing that. I'm not, I'm not humbling myself before that person. They were wrong too. God's saying I'm not talking to them. I'm talking to you. Well you should go talk to them. Because I'm not doing it. And we argue with God. Maybe for some of you God's saying you need to have Three conversions, a conversion of the mind, a conversion of the heart, and a conversion of your pocketbook. That's what Martin Luther says. I want in on your finances. I want you to act as a steward instead of an owner. I want you to be growing in generosity. And you say to God, God, if I had more money, I would do that. But I've got this much money, and you know that, so how dare you ask me for that? And we argue with God. And that bucket passes in front of us, and we say, gosh, this is so awkward. We argue with God. Maybe for some of us, we're trying to do the Christian life on our own, by ourselves. And God's saying, I saved you and I put you in a family. I saved you and I put people around you so that they could build you up and encourage you and teach you and disciple you. And you go to a church where there's lots of people are. I want you to make an investment. I want you to become a part of that family. And you're saying, man, I got stuff to do. I'm busy. I can't go to community group. Packers are on. Which, by the way, is a terrible argument, all right? Let's just be straight about that. The bears, no, I'm just kidding. We argue with God. Maybe some of you have come up to a place where you understand who God is and you believe that God wants you to take a big step of faith and you say, God, I'm scared. God, I don't know that you're gonna catch me on the other end. God, I, I don't feel like I can trust you. And God says, you can trust me, take the step. I can't do it, man. We argue with God. Lots of different ways and lots of different scenarios in which many of us spend years arguing with God. And what I want you to understand is that Peter argued with God because he couldn't see past what was right in front of him. Many of us, we argue with God because we can only see what's right here. And God's saying, if you'll be willing to lose this argument, I want to show you what's back there. Peter thought this argument was about Cornelius. God was talking about everyone in the world who wasn't Jewish. You understand that? Peter's like, I don't want to go hang out with that Italian guy. He scares me. I think he's in the mafia, right? And God's like, I'm not talking about him. I'm talking about everyone. And Peter argues again and again and again. And by God's grace, I want you to listen to this. God lets him. You understand the grace of God in this regard that God will let you argue with him. But what you'll lose as you argue is far greater than you can wrap your head around. What you lose while you're arguing about what only you can see at the expense of what God sees is something that by the time you take that step and lose that argument, you will grieve all the time that you've lost. What's the argument that you're having with God 
right now. For some of you, that argument is the same argument that Cornelius was having. I'm a good guy. I'm a good gal. How dare you say that that doesn't get me to God? And you're going to argue. And you're going to come to God with all the things you've done, with all your morality, with all your religion, and God's going to say no. And you're going to say, how dare, I'll go get more. How about that? Instead of losing the argument saying, okay, God, I got nothing. Will you give me what you have for me? Peter is one of my favorite guys in the Bible because he's so poignant. I know what it is to argue with God. Don't you? I know what it is to bring my best logic, to bring my best ideas, to bring my most principled conviction to God and know that he's saying, I have this for you. And me say, by no means, Lord. Not today. Actually, not forever. I'm not doing that. I can't do that. You don't know what that would cost me. You don't know how that would hurt me. You don't know. You don't know like I know, God. For some of you, today is a day for you to say, okay, I'm open to losing this argument. I'm open to coming to you empty-handed. I'm open to taking that step. I'm open to that investment. I'm open to that relationship. I'm open to forgiving. I'm open. I'm listening. Will you speak to me? I don't have a rebuttal, but will you speak to me? And will you lead me? And what you just might find is that the way that God wants to use you and that the way that God wants to bless you is the equivalent to one person versus the rest of the world. I want to uh, have you just spend some time talking to God. You've spent some time listening to me talk about God, but I want you to spend some time talking to God because I really believe that arguments and losing them are significant intersections in everybody's life when it comes to God. And what I don't want you to do is I don't want you to walk out of here in the idea that you'll talk to God about it later. I think that God wants to talk to you about it right now. And so I'm gonna ask you just to kind of get comfortable and kind of still your heart and say to God, these are the things that I've been arguing with you about and I know it, would you speak to me about them? That's it. I'm not saying commit to do something. I'm not saying, you know, I'm just saying just to listen. And then what we're going to do is we're just going to spend some time responding. We believe that God speaks and we respond. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, I'd love for you to come up and take communion. We're going to sing together. We're going to have people in the back who would love to pray with you. But I want you to hear from God before any of that happens. So I'm going to pray for you. And then we're going to give you a little bit of space. And then Michael will come back up and, and the gang and, uh, and lead us uh, in a song of praise. Okay? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace to us. God, you, 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 I look at the life of Peter and I see that you constantly let him argue. You just let him bicker with you for most of his life. And yet, you just were persistent and long-suffering and gracious with him. And you led him to the place where his eyes were opened. And then you used him mightily and blessed him deeply. God, I, I think that you're that same kind of God and I think we're just like Peter. We have things that we're arguing with you about. Relationships, steps, finances, forgiveness, community, investment. Things that you have spoken to us but we've 
said back to you, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that. God, today, I pray that you will speak to us anew. Give us new revelation. Speak to us. Argue with us in a way, God, where we're, we, we don't want to argue back. We just need you to speak to us as you promised to about whatever you want to say. Put thoughts in our head, God, that we know are from you. Give us the courage to hear from them, God. And then as we worship you, would you inhabit our praise? Would you make your presence known? And would you begin to use us, begin to bless us as we begin to lose arguments with you? We thank you, God. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.